All right, so we're in John chapter 1. So Dad's been closing each lesson with our theme verse, John 20, 31. So because I'm afraid I'm going to forget to do that, we're going to do it first. So if you have your, if you have your sheet, just so that everybody's on New American Standard Version... John 20, 31. Now, when you memorize things, the goal is for us to memorize it, right? So, we're going to, at some point, we're going to have to start doing it from memory. That's the whole point, right? So, um, it says, these have been written. All right? So, just say that part. These have been written. All right. Now, put your finger on the next word that says, so. So. All right. I didn't say say it. I just said put your fingers in. <laughs> so we're going to say that phrase that we just remembered. These have been written. And our eyes are going to go to our finger and pick up the rest. All right? These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So our phrase today is what? These have been written. All right. These have been written. Now, all of you educators out there can uh, tell us how we're really supposed to learn stuff. <laughs> but, but that gets us a start anyway. So John 1, uh, which is where we are, John chapter 1, as... I mentioned in uh, the introduction, verses 1 through 18 form what most people agree to call the prologue for John. Uh, It's an introduction, it's a summary uh, for the whole book, and we're going to look at the last four verses of the prologue uh, today, but uh, just keep it in mind that just like our theme verse says, um, in, in this section... John is going to tell us everything that he's going to tell us, right? And that's, isn't that what we're taught is uh, when we give speeches, right? Um, tell them what you're going to say, tell them, and then tell them what you said. And that's kind of what John is doing. We, we got the, here's what I told you at the very end. We just read that. And now the prologue, he's going to tell us what he's going to tell us. And verse 1 has some parallels with verse 18 that we'll get to in a moment. So I'll just read verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that in the beginning, as Dad has talked about, automatically that sets us up for um, to to basically understand that uh, this book is going to... uh, kind of be a big picture sort of book, right? Uh, When we start a story, what do we say? Once upon a time, right? We set it, we set it in some frame of reference, some history, and that that kind of gets us going. And and John takes us all the way back and says, in the beginning. So he's going to unpack a story that goes all the way back 
to the beginning. And, and as we go through some of our verses today, we're going to be going back a ways because the Bible is, is very unified in the sense that this is God's story. He's been there the whole time, right? Um, he started it. He's going to finish it. Um, and it's appropriate if you're talking about God that you start all the way back. And that's what John has done. Now, we, we have this other little verse in verse uh, 6 where it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, right? We know that was talking about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is going to make a brief appearance in the passage that we look at today. And then in verse 9, Dad covered these themes of uh, light and dark and the fact that Jesus came to his people, um, uh, but they didn't really receive him, and there's all that. Uh, Then in verse 12, we have this amazing just amazing for those of us who aren't Jews amazing word it says but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God so it wasn't just based on family tree it was based on belief and I was doing some reading and we think of because we you know we've been in the whole Old Testament a lot right and we think or at least I do you start to think of the Jews as kind of um, a very isolated, distinct group of people, right? Um, Adam and Noah and Abraham, and you think about that, but we kind of gloss over all those times when other people were assimilated into what we think of as the Jews. And so this concept that we could be grafted into that isn't as foreign as it sounds. I mean, think about it. You had Jews living in Egypt for 400 years. You don't think there were a couple 16-year-old Egyptians who thought that there were a couple 16-year-old Jews that, hey, they look pretty cute. You know, maybe we should go meet the dad and... Right? So you don't live 400 years with somewhere without some intermarriage going on, and they all, they all left too, right? And then there was this um, when uh, one of the covenants, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, there was a whole circumcision thing, right? Well, who got circumcised? All the males in Abraham's family and all the other folks that were in the household, right? If there were slaves, if there were other people that they'd picked up along the way, if you were a guy, if you're going to be in Abraham's household, you got fixed. You were all part of that. Uh, we know that in Jesus' lineage, uh, we, we have Ruth the Moabite gets grafted in back then. So, so God has been accumulating for himself a people throughout the Old Testament. And so here we have it very explicit for us in verse 12. It's about who believes, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. And it goes on, it says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. In other words, ultimately, all of this is wrapped up in God's sovereign hand as he has brought those people to himself and as he continues to do that. And that gets into deep waters that we certainly can't cover today. 
but can if you want down the road. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, let's go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So, now John's back to this concept. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, as we've considered this book and who it's to, remember, John is the patriarch at this point, right? He's seen a lot. It's been decades since Jesus was born. It's been decades since the crucifixion, right? Paul's been all over the place spreading the gospel and establishing churches and all this sort of stuff. He's in and out of jail. I don't know what John thinks about Paul, but he's seen it, right? And he's seen all this in a Roman world based on, well, a Roman world that is basically thoroughly infused with Greek culture. And in part, John is writing not just to Jews, but he's writing to other people who have also been infused with Greek culture. So this, and the word became flesh. To those people who were not Christians yet and not Jews, but who were in this pagan Greek-infused culture, that would have been really weird to hear because they were heavily influenced by the philosopher Plato, who had lived three or four hundred years before. The, The Greek concept they called dualism was basically this. There are two parts of us. There is the visible, the physical, the things we can do with our senses. And that's what's here on this life, and you can pretty much do what you want. But then there's this invisible part of us, I don't know if we'd call it the soul, or um, they might consider God, but this was uh, more of an ideal sort of thing, high and lofty. And those those two concepts were kept separate. There was this idealist, you know, God-ish sort of concept. And then there was this on-the-earth, physical, fleshly sort of concept, right? And and those two horses had just been traveling alongside of each other for a long time and went back and forth. So now some people do this, right? And we we see the difference between what happened Saturday night and what happened Sunday morning. So, I mean, we're not immune to this. But when it says, and the word became flesh, the Greeks were totally fine with this amorphous concept called the word. That would have been fine with them, right? High and lofty ideal, kind of detached from, you know, philosophical stuff, right? But when he says the word became flesh, that would have been really weird for them. And this word flesh, um, it's this incarnation. It's like it's like a human body sort of thing, right? It's like meat. It's like the word became meat. I like carnitas. You like car- that carnivore, right? That's meat. And when we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about God gets into meat. And it sounds weird that way, right? 
But that's what it says. God gets into flesh. So to the Greek dualist, what do you say? What, what's that? And again, John's making, he's picking a word. He could have said God came into humanity and that would kind of make it sound, make it be a little more philosophical. But when you use a word meat or flesh, stark, that would have, that would have got their attention. But look at this next phrase. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that would have been weird to the Jews. God in the middle of us? Walking among us? It says, and it dwelt among us. The word is the same word for tabernacle. He tabernacled with us. He pitched his tent with us. God was cordoned off in the past, right? Turn back over to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. This is part of the story where God is going to talk about the building of the ark and the building of the tabernacle. So Exodus 25, and it says, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, on the one hand, it's worth pointing out God has always wanted to have relationship with us. In, you know, after he created Adam, unlike the deist who thought God created the world, set it spinning, and then walked away, some of, when they say, you know, America's a Christian nation, Kinda. It kind of got there eventually. But there were a lot of our founding fathers that were deists. Pretty much had this view that God created everything and then went on to do something else. In any event, that's not what God did. God wanted a relationship. He was talking with Adam, right? He was aware of what Adam was going through. He gave Adam commands. Not that he was great following them, but he did. Uh, He provided things for Adam. He gave Adam Eve. I mean, God wanted relationship. Well, here we have many years later in Exodus and God is saying once again he wants to he wants to be in the middle of them he says let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst so a Jew is thinking dwelt among us tabernacled the word tabernacled among us so automatically they're thinking back to that that tabernacle is just a big tent Right? Who has been tent camping before? Let me do this another way. Who has never spent a night in a tent? 
we should fix this. <laughs> it's not too late. We need to, we need to consider it. Um, how thick is a tent? <laughs> Have you ever spent a night in a tent next to someone else in a tent? <laughs> right? You pretty much hear everything. Uh, you hear the next person snoring, among other things. Uh, you hear conversations. So when, when it says he pitched his tent among us, that's pretty intimate. That's right in there among us. The word became flesh, John says, waking up the ears of the Greeks, and dwelt among us, waking up the ear of the Jews who said, it's been a long time since God was in our midst, but he really never was fully in their midst, was he? He makes a point, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. So turn back to Exodus. I should have warned you we were going back there. Turn back to Exodus chapter 33. So while you're turning there, the context here is um, chapter 32 of Exodus was kind of the low point um, for the nation of Israel. They have uh, erected the golden calf um, and it was it was not good and um, chapter 33 um, they're getting they're getting their marching orders to, to leave the area um, Moses in verse 12 talks to God and says basically show me more of yourself verse 17 it says and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, it says, But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. John says, we've seen his glory. This is something not even Moses would have seen. Now look back in verse 19 where it says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will mercy We have a God who is gracious, recognizing that there is a standard. All that's tied up with this concept of glory. 
And some of those same words are used that I can't do a good job of explaining, but apparently this word dwelt among us has the same root for this word where you remember when Moses was in was in the presence of God on the mountain and he came down and his face was glowing and we call that the Shekinah glory. This this Shekinah word for for that glory has the same Hebrew root as this word dwelt among us. So when a Jew heard this concept of dwelt among us, they're not just thinking about tabernacle, they're also thinking about the Shekinah glory because that brought those two concepts together where there was the tabernacle which held the glory of God, right? So all of that is ringing in their ears who are aware of all this, and then he puts in this concept full of grace and truth, right? And we saw back in Exodus, God says that he is gracious, but mercy, you don't need mercy unless there's a penalty out there that you need to be spared from, right? So those concepts of graciousness in the the face of a standard where something needs to be dealt with is all pulled together in this one verse. We've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father. What? Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Just like God said of himself a few thousand years before. I think it's so cool. We, we hear this concept, right? God never changes. It's because God never changes. He is and always has been all about grace and truth. This concept of redemption that he is always trying to redeem, you know, our, our sinfulness, um, that's not new. Full of grace and truth. Now, in verse 15, we have this, this little parenthesis here. Right. It, it's in fact, the ESV actually puts parenthesis marks there. I don't know if your translation does, but it says in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, who come he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So. When it says in verse 14, we have seen his glory. This we have seen basically implies there were some eyewitnesses. This isn't a theoretical we have seen his glory, but we, you know, me, John the Baptist, you know, there are those of us who have actually seen his glory. So in verse 15, he says, now John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So now we have uh, this little hint we're going to see John the Baptist proper in just a few verses, but we have this little, uh, just this little snippet there that says, "Yeah, you're going to hear about John, and John's going to tell you about him." But even John says, "This little word game, um, yeah, I came before Jesus, but Jesus came before me, and out actually outranks me because he was before me, right? I mean, it's, but you get it, right? Because." Chronologically, in earth time, uh, Jesus did come after John. uh, But John's saying, oh yeah, but he was before me in time. And he was before me in rank. 
just in case there was any question. Verse 16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Uh, Who has uh, an NIV? What does your NIV say when this grace upon grace? What would you have for that? One blessing after another. So apparently there are two or three different ways that you can look at this little phrase, grace upon grace. And um, it's kind of, there's like a three-way split with good evidence for, um, in my commentary, it was position one and position three. (laughs) So position one was like the NIV. From his fullness, from everything that Jesus was and is, We've had blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. Grace on top of grace, covered with grace, squirted with grace on top, drizzling with grace, right? Just, I was picturing a Sunday. I don't know if anybody else was, but um, grace upon grace. But apparently... This other view, which some of the commentators I, I read, um, you could tell they were kind of leaning that way, says this can also mean grace instead of grace. Well, that's interesting, right? What do you mean grace instead of grace? And again, bear in mind that this whole passage has basically been to transport people back to the days of Moses and this grace instead of grace making the point that because he's going to talk if you it kind of flows in well, well let's let's go ahead and take in verse 17 because it, it puts it together from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace or I'll read it grace instead of grace for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ So this grace upon grace, or grace instead of grace, some people think it means that the law wasn't just some punitive thing, but that was grace too. That was also grace. It looked different, it was administered different, but it was grace nonetheless. Now I've heard some people argue and somewhat persuasively that the law was there just to beat us into submission so that we'd be ready for Jesus when he came because we would see just how horrible we are and our inability to keep the law and why we need Jesus, right? And I think there is that component of that and kind of Paul touches on that in Romans when he talks about our inability to keep the law and so forth. But here, if you think about it, where it says, from his fullness, back to verse 16, his fullness, that is Jesus' fullness, we've gotten grace instead of grace. I kind of like that concept because it, it makes the point that the law was grace at work also. And that, and now this is where our, our um, covenant theology friends would probably really resonate with them right 
um, our Westminster folks, our PCA folks, um, uh, Spurgeon, who was like Reformed Baptist, um, this covenantal view of God, this that that sacrifice wasn't just about blood covering the forgiveness of sin, but but a sacrifice was a reminder of the blood covenant that God made with us through Abraham, right? So God has been in covenant with us. So this concept of grace upon grace or grace instead of grace, I think it all works that God has been doing his grace thing for a really long time for our benefit, totally undeserved. And like it says back in verse 13, just God's will, not even ours. You got to think that John's primary audience would have been thinking, this sounds really good. This sounds really good. This sounds so good. It might be too good to be true. Um, so this is unlike the infomercials that make everything sound so amazing and then there's really a letdown. This, it just keeps getting better. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So what's kind of our theme been for this little passage? That God has always wanted to be relate in relation to us. He has always wanted to be in the middle of us. That in former times, for our own safety, he had to somewhat conceal himself from us so that we just saw his back or the cloud or the pillar, manifestations of who God was, but not the whole package, as it were. But now, John says, God, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, right? So we got that. Except God, John says, but you have. It says, the only God, or some say the only Son, or some passages say the one and only, but the only God who is at the Father's side. So again, that's a deity verse, right? At the Father's side, but also the only God. You can't explain the Trinity very well. You just kind of got to go with it that you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all God. Three persons, perfect communication and intimacy with each other. Um, can't explain it. But here we have the only God, Jesus, who the one who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has finally, after all this time, made it so that you can see God. You can see God. And there are those of us who have seen his glory. Now, there was definitely some glorification stuff that they saw, right? Uh, Peter, James, and John saw the transfiguration, right, up on the mount. So they saw, like, what we would think of legit glory experience. 
But it wasn't just that. In John, we're going to see a lot of miracles. We're going to see signs of his power. Well, that's part of his glory too. So when it says we have seen his glory, we've seen who Jesus is, uh, or rather we've seen Jesus, and Jesus has allowed us to see God. Because he was the word in the beginning. He's been there all along. But now he's in flesh. And he pitched his tent among us. And did the tabernacle just stay put? Was it just there to be in one place? No. It traveled with them, right? So tied up with tabernacle is not only here's God. It's not only God's glory is in there somewhere. It's also he's traveling with us. So when John pulls together all these mosaic images, we have Jesus showing us finally who God is dwelling among us and journeying with us so that we could see who he was. We could hear how he talked. We could understand what his heart was, right? And so when you flash forward to that upper room where Jesus is really telling them who he is and why he came and how it all fits and the new covenants and the old covenants, it starts to hang together, right? We'll close in one reference where you hear this echo again because the writer of Hebrews pulls it all together in a similar way, right? Hebrews chapter 1, 1. It says, long ago... So what's he doing? He's going back to the start, right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrew says, Jesus is God. And he's been there from the start. John says, Jesus is God. He's been there from the start. And so this prologue, 1 through 18, if you read that periodically over these coming months, just to remind yourself how it all fits together, why is John telling us this, the whole point of it was that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he's going to unpack it for us now with evidence along the way. Lots of miracles, eyewitnesses, all pointing back to the fact that this is Jesus who came to dwell among us. Pretty cool stuff. All right, I'll stop there. Questions, comments? Finish the sentence in Hebrews 1. And he upholds the 
I did, I did cut it short, didn't I? He is the radiance, verse 3 of Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to be a part of such an amazing story. Just by your will, not ours, we have been privileged to be grafted in to this amazing family and to get to know that the amazing Jesus, the amazing God, who is always wanting to dwell among us. We are so grateful. Father, I pray that you would continue to um, understand who you are by understanding Jesus more. In his name, amen. Thanks, everybody.